Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 36, The Great War. I've been debating what a good topic to start the new year off would be, until I got a great suggestion. 2014, after all, is the 100-year anniversary of an event that has done more to shape the world than anything else since. On June 28, 2014, it will have been 100 years to the day since a man named Yavrilo Princip, a member of the Serbian nationalist Black Hand movement, shot and killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. The war that resulted between Serbia and Austria-Hungary quickly dragged in Russia, then Germany, then France, then the United Kingdom and Belgium, in a general cataclysm that lasted four years, consumed the lives of millions, and shattered four of the world's largest and most powerful monarchies. World War I completely reshaped the world and, arguably, is the most important event of the 20th century. Without it, the world would not at all be what it is. Commemorations of the war are planned throughout the next four years. By far the most interesting project, to my mind, is an attempt to live-tweet the entire war over the next four years of anniversaries of its major events. Anyway, this is all very interesting, but why are we talking about it? After all, this is the History of Japan podcast, not the History of Interesting Things podcast. Well, Japan was a part of the Allied coalition, and, with a few months' delay, entered the war on the side of the Allies. Citing its 1902 Treaty of Alliance with Great Britain, the first ever treaty of alliance between Asian and European power, Japan entered the war in late 1914 and proceeded to seize all German territory in the Pacific, mostly in Polynesia, with some concessions along the coast of China. Japan's military commitment to the war was functionally over by 1915, since the German plan for Europe called for a desperate offensive in an attempt to overwhelm France and knock it out of the war, before turning to defeat Russia. Since overwhelming superiority was necessary to beat the French, since at this time France was still considered the number two military power in Europe, the Germans took everything they had and threw it against them, essentially leaving their Pacific colonies undefended. Japan continued to assist its allies through the rest of the war, but it did so primarily by selling them arms and ammunition than it did with active military contribution. In fact, Japan was one of the few countries to seriously benefit from World War I, transforming from a debtor country into a creditor one. The only other country to accomplish this during this time period was actually the United States. However, while the Japanese military contribution was minimal, the transformations brought to Japan by the war were not, and that's what we'll be focusing on today. In what ways did the First World War mark a turning point in Japanese history? Well, to deal with one that doesn't really fit very well anywhere else very early on, one that's very near and dear to my heart, the Japanese beer industry got its start during World War I. It was derived in large part from the work of German prisoners of war. The fighting in Asia never reached the desperate pitch that the war in Europe did, and the treatment of prisoners was consequently much more civilized. German prisoners were granted considerable freedom. After all, what were they going to do, escape to Siberia? and among the many requests they were granted was the right to set up beer breweries, because yes, the Germans have always been like that. 
several of the major breweries in Japan and Korea were started in this way. And some of the captured Germans even decided to stay in Asia after the war to keep them going. Anyway, aside from the culinary consequences, what else changed? Well, the change in the regional power structure in Asia provided a tremendous opening for Japan. The Japanese seized the opportunity to eliminate Germany from Asia, strengthening their own position. Great Britain, in a desperate fight for its life, since, for the first month or two of the war, it seemed unclear whether Britain and France would even be able to stop the Germans, pulled most of its forces out of Asia. For well over a century, the UK had dominated Asia from India to Hong Kong, but suddenly Britain was in a retreat from a region where it had long been the greatest power. The same logic applied to France, which held the region of Indochina, modern Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, though France was considerably less important as a major player than the UK. By far the biggest shift in the region was Russia. Though they had lost the Russo-Japanese War, the Russians had undergone an ambitious program of military reorganization afterwards, and had done much to modernize their military in terms of technology and organization. Because of this, common wisdom at the start of the war was that if the British and French could hold the line against Germany in one direction, the Russians could gather together an overwhelming force and simply steamroller the limited German forces in the east. By Christmas, Russian troops would be, in the words of one French general, drinking champagne in Berlin. Unfortunately, Russia had not modernized its command structure. Military leadership was still based on social rank rather than talent. Furthermore, it was under tremendous pressure by a panicked France, which was losing ground to Germany at an astonishing rate, to attack in the east to draw German forces away from the battered French. Both of these factors combined in the form of a premature and badly organized Russian offensive that was swiftly crushed by a numerically inferior German army. Instead of steamrolling Germany, the Russians found themselves in a desperate fight to keep the Germans back from their own territory. More and more Russian forces were pulled out of Asia in an attempt to hold the line. When this failed, the Russian government eventually collapsed in 1917 replaced first by a democratic state devoted to continuing the war, and then by the Bolshevik communists under Vladimir Lenin. Russia was engulfed in a civil war that did not end until the early 1920s, and Russian power in Asia functionally collapsed. In the end, Great Britain was able to partially reassert itself in Asia, but it was never as dominant there as it had once been. France became a minor player in the region, and Russia, racked by civil war and then by the brutality of collectivization under Stalin, did not recover much influence in the region until the 1930s. Asia was left with only two real powers in the region. On the one hand was the Empire of Japan, and on the other, another newly emergent world power, the United States, which would rise from the ashes of World War I as arguably the most powerful state on Earth and which was, at the time, in control of the Philippine Islands after seizing them from Spain in the Spanish-American War. In essence, then, the power configuration at the end of World War I was the same one which would eventually lead to a conflict between Japan and the United States over control of Asia. World War I was very much the prelude to and set up for the Pacific War. 
It's worth stopping for a second to ask where China was in all of this. In 1914, the Infant Republic of China was only a little over two years old. Having overthrown the ethnically Manchu Qing dynasty in 1911, in 1912 Dr. Sun Yat-sen and his allies proclaimed a new Republic of China. That republic, however, was already on shaky ground due to both conflicts within the leadership between Sun and the head of the military, Yuan Shikai, and due to the failure of the regime to assert much control beyond central China. In the end, both of these problems would prove beyond the control of the leadership. Yen Shikai would break with Sun and seize dictatorial control of the country before dying in 1916, and the peripheral regions of China would break off into a series of de facto independent warlord states. China was, simply put, falling apart at the seams. So what did Japanese leaders do with this tremendous opportunity? Here we get into another way in which 1914 was something of a transitional year. It was the first international incident where the new generation of Japanese leadership got to show what it was made of. By 1914, the vast majority of those who had led the country in the turbulent years after the Meiji Restoration were dead. Only Yamagata Aritomo, whose health was failing, he would die a mere eight years later, and Saiyunji Kinmochi still remained. The rest of the leadership was composed of their protégés and heirs, political wheelers and dealers like the talented politician Harake, militarists like Yamagata's student Katsura Taro, and others were now the guiding lights of Japanese policy. We'll probably do biographies on most of these men, if not all of them, over the coming months and years, but for now, it's just worth noting that this is a new, rather unseasoned generation of leadership. Having missed the struggles of the 1870s and 1880s, these men had risen to prominence in the last decade of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th, when it seemed Japan could do anything it set its eyes on. Perhaps then it is not surprising that they chose to take a far more aggressive tack than their forebearers. Faced with a regional system where only one great power remained to keep them in check, where there had once been four, and the one that was left had a distinctly isolationist bent after over a decade spent pacifying the Philippines, the Japanese leadership chose to seize this moment to expand. Expansion took place in two areas, Russia and China. In the case of Russia, as the October Revolution took place in 1917 and it became clear that the communists had a real shot at victory, many of the other major world powers began contemplating an intervention in Russia to stop them. At first, this was limited to supplies and monetary aid to the anti-communist forces, a loose military coalition referred to collectively as the White Army, in opposition to the communist Red Army. After the First World War ended in 1918, however, some states began intervening directly with military forces, landing in Siberia to secure a base for the White Russian movement to operate out of. Japan was by far the most enthusiastic of the intervening powers. Seeing the chance to seize Siberia and banish the Russian threat from its borders, the Japanese army responded to a request for 7,000 soldiers as part of the expedition, by sending 12,000 instead, more than every other coalition member combined. Eventually, the Japanese commitment to Siberia would escalate to some 70,000 troops. Japan also backed a series of separatist governments in Siberia, 
with the hope of using the chaos of the revolution to break Russia apart. If they could accomplish this, they would have a convenient buffer zone in place to protect their economic interests in Korea and Manchuria, making their position in Northern Asia essentially invulnerable. Unfortunately for Japan, the plan failed. The other coalition members objected heavily to Japanese behavior, correctly suspecting that Japan was not motivated entirely by a desire to help the embattled white Russians. Both foreign and domestic pressure prevented the army from either annexing the territory or setting up an independent puppet regime. A lesson the army would remember well more than a decade later, when it went out of its way to mobilize public support for the Japanese position in Manchukuo. Furthermore, the White Russian movement essentially collapsed in 1920 after a string of brutal defeats by the Red Army. The rest of the coalition withdrew once the cause clearly became hopeless, but Japan stuck around until 1922. In the end, the Japanese army ran out of public support and was forced to retreat empty-handed from Siberia. 5,000 Japanese troops were lost in the campaign, which ultimately cost around 900 million yen. At the same time, the aggressive Japanese leadership began moving against China. After the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, the official policy agreed to by the great powers in China, backed by the United States, was known as the Open Door, and was essentially designed to protect China's territorial integrity and keep it open for free trade. Rather than destroying China and exhausting themselves by fighting for control of the region, the British and Americans were able to enforce a regime of economic competition and political coexistence. The war diverted attention from the maintenance of that regime, however, and Japanese leaders seized on the opportunity, as well as the general weakness of the Republic of China. In 1915, Prime Minister Okuma Shigenobu issued a series of 21 demands to the Chinese government. These demands can be broken down into five basic components. The first set demanded Chinese recognition of Japan's control over territories in China previously held by Germany. The second demanded increased concessions and lease rights in Manchuria. The third extended Japanese power over a series of mining and metallurgical operations in the vicinity of an area called Hanyaping. The fourth barred China from giving any more coastal or island concessions of territory to any power aside from Japan. The fifth, and by far most controversial group, demanded that Japan be able to appoint advisors to the Chinese central government and police force, essentially blocking China's government from being able to operate without Japanese approval. The Chinese responded by leaking the demands and asking for help from the West. The resulting backlash and pressure from abroad resulted in A. Japan's image being severely tarnished, and B. The fifth group of demands being dropped. China agreed to the remaining demands. On the surface, this was a pretty big win for Japan, since, after all, they'd gotten most of what they wanted. But in many ways, this was where they really began to dig their own grave in China. The Republic of China was also, after all, nominally part of the Allied coalition against the Central Powers. It had, in fact, unlike Japan, sent workers to the Western Front, who were used to dig trenches by the French army. The general perception around the world was that Japan was taking advantage of the weakness of an ally to beat up on them, and that did not do them any favors in terms of worldwide perception. When Japan was able to force acceptance of its new position in China during the 1919 peace conferences at the end of the war, 
the public reaction in China was a vicious upsurge of anti-Japanese nationalism, with protests beginning on May 4th, so this is generally known as the May 4th Movement. This was the beginning of the anti-Japanese sentiment that would eventually rally the Chinese to fight Japan in the 1930s, and which the Chinese Communist Party would eventually so skillfully manipulate to rise to the top, and which it is in many ways still using for its benefit. Both the United Kingdom, which, lest we forget at this point, was Japan's closest ally, and the United States, where there had previously been a great deal of pro-Japan sentiment amongst the leadership, also began to drift away from Japan during this point. Both nations began to feel that Japan was moving away from defending its legitimate interests in Asia and towards aggressive overexpansion into China. As a result, both nations began moving away from Japan. The UK annulled its alliance with Japan in 1922, and the United States began building a stronger relationship with China. Japan had won a minor victory, but it had done so at the cost of diplomatically isolating itself vis-a-vis its neighbors. So then, to get back to the point we started with, why should we care about 1914? What was the effect of World War I on Japan? Well, the war provided an opening for further Japanese expansion in Asia, one which it seized with abandon. However, it also marked a major transition in Japanese policy. Previous Japanese leaders, humbled by the experiences of the Meiji Restoration, avoided directly confronting other powers unless absolutely necessary, and made sure they were not diplomatically isolated and could always call on some support. They were committed to Japanese expansion, yes, but that expansion was not so overt as to draw the wrath of others down on the country. Their successors, however, lacked this circumspect attitude. Instead, they seized the opportunities of 1914 to expand in every direction heedless of the cost, striking out against Russia and Germany and China. Rather than play a cautious game and avoiding being isolated, they tried to grab whatever they could, even if it meant alienating everyone around them. This, in other words is where the attitude of Japanese policy began to shift away from the cautious and deliberate calculation of the Meiji period, and towards the damn the torpedoes full speed ahead expansion that would eventually lead to the quagmire in China and to war with the United States. In 1868, Japanese leaders thought long-term and planned for gains they knew they could hold on to. In 1914, Japanese leaders thought short-term and simply assumed that because they had never failed before, they could not fail now. 1914 was the first step on the road to war with China in 1937 and with the United States in 1941. And though not all of them would live to see it, some of these leaders would eventually be confronted with the price of their hubris, the deaths of millions, the end of empire, and the collapse of everything they and their predecessors had striven for. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.